Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, a podcast by Fightback, the Marxist voice of labor and youth. We live in a revolutionary epoch. The crisis of the capitalist system is creating political polarization and instability in every single country, as millions of people look for a way out. The product of this is unprecedented social upheaval and yes, revolution. Now we firmly believe that the crisis of capitalism is creating the conditions for socialist revolution. Yes, even in Canada. The point of this podcast is to provide a Marxist analysis of what Trotsky described as the molecular process of socialist revolution. This week in the Canadian Revolution, uh, we are going to talk about pride uh, and the fight against oppression based on sexuality or gender. Uh, yeah, this is Pride Week. Uh, there are pride events all over the country. There are pride parades, celebrations, there are small demonstrations. Um, so yeah, we're going to get into today what is pride, uh, the history of this question, uh, the Marxist analysis of this question on how to fight oppression. Uh, and how to fight for a sexual revolution. Uh, and we're going to compare this, compare and contrast this with many different ideas in the movement um, and explain why Marxism is the best tool to help us today to fight against oppression, to put an end to oppression, to all forms of oppression, once and for all. Uh, and with me today, I have Coral, who is an activist with Socialist Fight Back uh, in Montreal. Uh, hello. Hi, Joel. Happy Pride. Yeah, welcome. Um, yeah, so why don't we just get right into it? I guess we can first start with what is Pride? Um, do you want to just give us a brief explanation of what, what this is? Yeah, sure. I guess very briefly put, Pride is an achievement of the LGBT community. And essentially, it's our refusal to be ashamed or being pushed to live our lives underground. Um, as well as um, a symbol of our continuing struggle for genuine liberation. And I guess today, pride takes on many forms uh, around the world. Um, in many countries, it still remains, uh, the world remains a dangerous place for many LGBT people. Um, you know, it's still illegal uh, to be gay or homosexuality or any related behavior still remains uh, illegal in over 70 countries. Uh, punishment ranging from lifetime imprisonment, even death penalty. Uh, only 29 countries recognize same-sex marriage, so the struggle really continues. Um, but in many countries, like here in Canada, where it's seen as a LGBT haven almost, pride is more associated with partying, celebration, and we see that today it is largely co-opted by um, large corporations uh, who would not have been there during the first um, LGBT pride, you know. Um, so yeah, we have an interesting picture before us, I think, today. Yeah, we have, I think anyone who's been to pride will know that the main pride <clears throat> event is basically a big state-sponsored corporate parade of sorts. Uh, and all the corporations uh, change their logos to put a rainbow flag uh, and uh, put it this way, pretend to care, to be honest, opportunistically for profits. Uh, there's many examples of 
the hypocrisy of this. Um, there's Walmart who openly fund right-wing Christian anti-gay lobbies in the U.S. and then carry pride and joy products <laughs> and try to get try to have it both ways, I guess. Um, yeah, and <clears throat> most of these corporations definitely were not there uh, when pride when pride began when the when the struggle was a. Uh, uh, beginning, or not even beginning, but it was beginning to have success, I suppose, fight back. Um, so yeah, that's, I think that helps us describe pride today, although I, I would say that it's not, it's not all, it's not a monolithic thing. There's like uh, trans marches and dyke marches that tend to be uh, a bit more left-wing uh, that we, we will be participating in as socialist fight back to bring a revolutionary perspective uh, this weekend and in the coming week. Um, but yeah, that's that's pride is also the question, another one I wanted to raise, and that's become a debate that pe many people will be aware of. There's a question of, should the police be allowed to be at pride? Um, in Toronto, the pride organizers allowed the police. It caused a big, it's caused a big debate um, about whether or not the police as an organization who have historically oppressed, uh, beaten, killed uh, LGBT uh, people uh, should even be allowed as an organization. There are many people, I think the vast majority, think that it's absolutely ridiculous that they're allowed to attend. But people within even the LGBT community, and of course uh, amongst the ruling class uh, and capitalist parties, absolutely insist that it is somehow discriminatory against the police to not allow them to have a, I don't know, a, a big gay float in the in the pride parade or whatever. Um, but yeah, this is an, I think, you know, this is an example of where pride is at today. In many ways, I'd say it kind of resembles International Women's Day in the sense that International Women's Day, uh, the main things are largely state-sponsored parades celebrating women uh, and motherhood and things like that. Uh, and they've sort of stripped a lot of the more radical political messages. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I think that, that does it in terms of like, what is pride? Um, but I guess I just have a question. Is this, is this anything like the original pride? You already alluded to this, that it is corporations definitely would not have been there, uh, at the original pride, but yeah, maybe we can get into that. There's a, there's a, there's a difference between what pride was and what pride is. So yeah. Can you maybe explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like I mentioned, and it is a, a slogan that we hear common pride was a riot and that is absolutely correct so um i think many people will be familiar with what happened in stonewall inn in june 1969 so a little over 50 years now um i think when describing what happened at stonewall it is necessary to talk a little bit about the context of what was happening at the time so the 50s and 60s it was a quite um interesting period really um, because you have um, in the US so that we're talking about the aftermath of World War II um, and in the US homosexuality was still illegal and LGBT people were largely seen as uh, sexual psychopaths or like deviants and it, 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 this was also the epoch of uh, McCarthyism right just McCarthy um, and we see very interesting actually the anti-communist sentiments and homophobia closely intertwined um, and there were there was uh, organizations, LGBT organizations uh, for homosexual rights at the time. They called themselves the homophile movement, uh, and they mostly remain in the margins of society. And most LGBT groups at the time they were really 
following an approach of establishing a dialogue, winning some legal rights uh, with very little success. And during this time, um, we see a revolutionary upswing actually um, in society. Um, you have in the 60s, you have kind of the um, civil rights movement happening, uh, the movement against uh, the war in Vietnam. Um, yeah. And internationally also, you know, the movement in France, May 68, uh, the uh, student movement in Mexico. And you, you can all see this kind of revolutionary movement culminating. And uh, this was a time where raids were quite common for uh, places that were um, frequented by LGBT people. And one such place was Stonewall Inn. So in 1969, June, um, Stonewall Inn was raided by the cops themselves, who today were debating whether or not they should be included in the pride. Um, and the thing is, the general feeling, the night where the raid happened, the general feeling was that this was a yet another routine harassment. But as Marxists like to say, this ended up being the uh, straw that broke the camel's back. So in just a few days, thousands of people were mobilized, LGBT people, non-LGBT people who were supporting the struggle. Um, and yeah, there's a famous kind of image of the brick being thrown. So riders were throwing pennies, bottles, cobblestones, whatever they could find, chanting gay power. So you really see this was really the moment of radicalization of the LGBT liberation movement and essentially the beginning of the modern LGBT rights movement that we see today. Um, and yeah, this would spark an unprecedented wave of gay activism. And we could see that with the formation of the Gay Liberation Fronts, which the name kind of alludes to the uh, Vietnam uh, War as well. Um, and they were, they described themselves as a revolutionary group of people. But yeah, they aimed to abolish existing social institutions and essentially made the connection to capitalism and essentially made the connection of uniting with all the oppressed. Uh, the Vietnamese struggle, the third world, uh, the black struggle, the workers, they explicitly would put that forward. So it also kind of necessarily came into conflict with the more conservative leadership of the existing organizations who did not want to display gay power or risk antagonizing certain liberal allies and cities, government, um, what have you. Um, yeah. Okay, well, thank you. That that <laughs> helps demonstrate that, yeah, the original pride, yeah, was a, was a, well, it was a battle with the cops, really. It was a, it was a, it was a riot, as it were. Uh, yeah, so it was very radical. And, and in, I think, context, super important, you stated, like, it was a, in a revolutionary epoch. Actually, much like what we are living through today. Um, revolutionary movements, mass movements, radicalization, polarization uh, of the working class and of oppressed people uh, all over the world. Um, but yeah, at the time, you saw this in mass uh, mass movements, uh, anti-capitalist sentiment uh, all over the place in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, dictatorships were overthrown in the 1970s and uh, in places like Southern Europe. Uh, and you had, yeah, you had a questioning of the system and its institutions um, and, and, uh, and all the oppressive uh, ideas and prejudices that came along with it. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that that is important to note. Subsequently, you had a period of, I guess, lull uh, in the movement. Uh, and uh, as we've described, a bit of a co-optation co of the movement, of not, not just the, um, 
the struggle for sexual liberation, but uh, many different struggles. Like the black struggle was largely like they channeled it into the creation of a black bourgeoisie in the states who are largely in the Democratic Party. Uh, people like Oprah Winfrey, uh, uh, whatnot. There, oh, you can get, you can, you can push yourself forward as well. And they've done this with, uh, you know, you had Pete Buttigieg in the Democratic Party running for, running to see if he could be president. So uh, it's not, you know, this way they can sort of put it forward as, you know, look, it's not the same. It's every, you know, we're all equal. Everything's good, right? When I think the statistics and the, well, the lives, the experiences of LGBT people tell us something different. And even in law, I mean, in the States, uh, we've seen a proliferation of, of uh, reactionary laws looking at restricting people's rights uh, in many different states. Um, yeah, so, yeah, this isn't really, uh, you got, you got kind of two, two uh, things happen here. You got liberals that are one wing of the ruling class that kind of are the you know, sort of friendly to the oppressed in words, uh, always in words, very rarely in actions. And, and you know, they, 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 they serve the function of being a, a bit of a safety valve to let some anger express itself and try to show that the system supports oppressed people. And so they can co-opt movements like this. And then you have the other side, which is the overtly homophobic, uh, conservative, usually quite often religious uh, wing, um, which, uh, I mean, maybe that segues nicely into the next uh, point, which we should address, which is the history of the struggle, because it's not as though this uh, all of a sudden was a question in the 60s, right? <laughs> I think it's existed for a long time, although conservatives and many, I think many people, because of what is sort of common sense today, or like is perceived as common sense, or has been for a long time, uh, uh, is like a monogamous family, man, woman, children, uh, as being some sort of eternal, natural social formation. Um, and this is this is presented by like right-wing conservatives, traditionalists, uh, Christians, uh, well, religious people, as a, a, as a, yeah, some sort of natural thing. And therefore, anything outside of that is... Uh, is unnatural and this has been the basis of a lot of laws against homosexuality or like sodomy as they would call it in the past uh, um, uh, trans people um, all sorts of things um, so maybe we should you know address that I know that a lot of people listening to this probably know that that's not true <laughs> that conservative argument but we sh should still maybe use that to maybe talk about I guess the Marxist analysis of the, where 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 does the oppression of uh, people on the basis of sexuality or gender come from? Are these things just hardwired into us? Is it natural, as conservatives would say? So I don't know. Do you want to maybe start us off? Speak to that. Yeah, um, I think first of all, for anyone who's serious about fighting against oppression based on sexual or sexual orientation or gender, this is really the starting point. Where does it come from? Because we have to understand its origins if we want to actually eradicate it uh, from society, right? Uh, all these oppressive kind of prejudices and oppressive societal norms, if you will, we, which we hear about quite a lot, but where does it actually come from? And I think of this argument of uh, the LGBT people, existence of LGBT people somehow goes against the natural order. 
Um, I think, like you said, many people who are listening and will know that this is not true. Um, I think there's two kind of main arguments to be made. One, we look at nature itself. You know, I think we all know that homosexual behavior, however you want to describe it, it exists in nature. A lot of other mammals do exhibit this sort of behavior. There's a vast diversity of sexual behavior among all animals, really, you know. So on that note, it is not <laughs> unnatural somehow. But I think a more compelling argument even is looking at human society itself, not as is today under capitalism, but in its entire history, right? Because when we actually study the huge span of different human societies, we see many, many examples of same-sex relations, many different gender identities outside the today's male-female binary, um, you know, not only being accepted or tolerated, but being integrated into everyday life and in some cultures even celebrated. And I think that there could be so many examples. We're in Canada, we know various kinds of two-spirit people have existed in the pre-Columbian Americas. And we, we do see similar social realities uh, in Africa, in Pacific Islands, in South Asia. We see this both historically and to an extent today as well. Um, so I think when we look at this variation and different attitudes towards uh, this variation based on gender and sexuality, it not only this uh, oppression uh, is not inevitable or a timeless future of human society, but we can change it. We can move from this. We can actually address it, right? Um, so there's nothing really natural about oppression of LGBT people. Um, yeah, and in fact, I think if we really delve into it, where does it originate really? Uh, I think the history shows that it is tied to the rise of class society. Yeah, exactly. Flown off of that. Um... Yeah, what do we mean by the rise of class society? I think that's an important one. So, I mean, a lot of some some of this is is common knowledge that uh, due to the ar archaeological evidence and anthropology anthropological studies that humans, all human societies, find at one uh, if we go back far enough, our origins in a sort of a hunter gatherer. Uh, society, uh, which those relations, uh, generally speaking, and that's the general consensus among most archaeologists and anthropologists that study hunter-gatherer studies, that the, the, the ideas that come out of that, the societal forms that come out of that are generally communal, and the gender relations, the relations between men and women are generally egalitarian, more egalitarian. Uh, obviously, there was variation within that, but that's a generalization. Completely different than what we have today, which is around the world, it's all patriarchal, monogamous family unit. Oppression of women is considered normal and natural, right, uh, in class society. But if you go back far enough, the opposite was true. Uh, oppression of women was seen as, as, it was strange. In many, in many societies, actually, women were held in high esteem. Uh, they were the producers of life. And the productive activity of women who, because of being child bears, uh, were, did, did more of the gathering. Actually, in many societies, the gathering was the majority of the production for food. <laughs> so there, you know, there might have been a somewhat of a, you know, even natural division of labor in hunting and gathering in a lot of societies that I think that is generally true due to child bearing. Uh, the, uh, that didn't mean that women were oppressed. 
And in some ways it meant that women were held in high esteem. Now, what does that have to do with the question of sexual, sexual and gender uh, oppression? Well, based on that, you know, Frederick Engels, uh, who worked with Marx back in the day, wrote a book called The Origins of the Family, Private Property, and the State, which I think is an excellent book. It's a very essential book to understand where uh, this form of oppression comes from. And he, he describes that at a certain point, you had the development of the productive forces. What we mean by that is technique, the production of basic foodstuffs, the domestication of animals, the cultivation of crops. And with this, the production for the first time in human history, over a period of time, you had the production of a stable surplus for society. And with the production of a stable, stable surplus for the first time, it was possible for classes to exist, econ socioeconomic classes, haves and have-nots. Uh, and with that, uh, Engels describes came the historic defeat of the female sex. So women were relegated to the home, the, uh, and this was all to do with property. It was all to do with inheritance, actually, passing on property to your kids. And the family unit started to become a very important unit while in what I'd say is like primitive communal communist hunter-gatherer society. Uh, actually, the monogamous family unit was generally not really a thing. You had various forms of marriage, group marriage, uh, uh, definitely legally wasn't, but even socially as a practice wasn't so much a thing. Um, and you, you can look at this through studies of many indigenous groups in Canada uh, that yeah, has, has proven this and, and indigenous groups in, in Africa and Latin America and, and, and all over the place. You see similar trends with, with similar types of societies. But yeah, with the advent of class society, you see a cementing of certain social relations um, and the, yeah, a monogamous family, as Marx described it, a bourgeois family unit at a certain point uh, where the, women, the woman is uh, uh, oppressed in the family. Uh, looking after the kids in the home, uh, and therefore, and and then and then on top of this is built all of the prejudices and the ideological justification for the state of affairs, which excludes anything outside of this. Um, so that goes for homosexuals. I think it goes for trans people and, and any other identity that's outside of this. And then on top of that is like then you have the state laws against things outside of this. So the family unit is a is a, I guess a a, a a pillar of support for the bourgeois family and is a pillar of support for the system and for the ruling class. And you see that in every class society. Um, and so it's necessary for the society to, to, to propagate uh, oppressive prejudice attitudes uh, against anything that's outside of that. But yeah, this gets into, I guess, the Marxist analysis of, I guess, base superstructure. So the base you can have is a uh, an economic one, you know, the relations of production uh, of a certain society. Uh, and then on top of that, you have uh, the superstructural, legalistic, ideological forms that justify this relations, these relations, which are inherently exploitative and oppressive. But no system would last if it was just brute exploitation. They have to divide the population in some way against each other so that, so that the system and the ruling class can maintain itself. So I guess what we're getting at here is that this oppression has material roots in class society and today in capitalism. And therefore we would argue that the struggle against 
any form of oppression, but particularly we're talking here the struggle against oppression on the basis of gender or sexu sexual orientation, cannot be divorced from the struggle of the laboring oppressed class against the, the, ex the ruling class and against the system as a whole. And I hope we've made that clear. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Corral, do you have anything that you want to come in on? This is a huge question, so I'm sure we could talk for a, a little while longer. Uh, yeah, I think a couple things. What you mentioned about essentially the superstructure, so sexual norms of monogamous family, kind of attitudes towards diversity and sexuality and gender, it does arise from an economic basis in society. And it's not a linear uh, correlation, obviously. And then I mentioned that, you know, in different societies, we see different attitudes towards this. And I think um, in early class society, we really see this, like what you mentioned, the historic defeat of the female sex. And this oppression of women is necessarily tied to repression of any um, some homosexual behavior or obviously gender-based oppression. But um, there's interesting examples of it, I think. You know, it's very common to talk about ancient Greeks and Romans, how they had like a very lax attitude towards homosexuality, it was very free. Obviously it was partially correct because, you know, we see that essentially the idea is that different class societies across history defined the family or what was sexually permissible according to the demands of their property relations, right? So Romans, Greeks, they had a more lax attitude because their economies were built on conquest and slave labor, so reproduction of a working population was not really central to creating the wealth of the ruling class. So they sort of didn't care that much. But over time, you see a lot more repressive set of attitudes being developing, right? Um, particularly in Europe, when you think about kind of feudalism, all that stuff where, you know, individuals now are tied to land, they're free to marry and have children, but these children are expected to carry out future labor for their lords or military service. So in these conditions, reproduction becomes a moral obligation. And you see that's being reflected in the way Christianity was practiced. You know, the religion started soon stressing the duty of men and women to reproduce within wedlock and started talking about sins against nature. And obviously what this transformed into under capitalism, where the expansion of the wealth of the bourgeoisie of the ruling class still relies on uh, reproduction of future workers, right? Um, so in an attempt to maintain social control, like you mentioned, on a legal frame, marriage really turned from a verbal agreement to a legal contract, right? So home now for the worker is now to be a place of stability and virtue, you know, we talk about bourgeois morality, um, where the responsibility of domestic labor and childcare rests on the shoulders of the woman, right? Um, and I think th there's also an interesting development here historically as well because before what the target of repression was sort of sinful acts or kind of sodomy in a in terms of the it's an illegal act but slowly under capitalism this really turned into a type of person a habitual sodomite quote unquote of course um so yeah this really shows you what essentially repression sexual repression turn into under uh, capitalism as well. Yeah, I think that helps us understand how we got here, which again, to go back to the, the beginning of this is not natural. It's not this, uh, I think what quite often happens is there's a revisionism is that people take what is 
currently kind of a norm and then revise it back, revise history to be, oh, there's just monogamous families dotted throughout time and space. Uh, or the oppression of women is just because women have all, it has always been like that. Um, everyone knows those types of arguments. So I hope we put that to rest. And I hope we've also explained why, yeah, yeah, how the, there is a certain, there's a certain logic here with the development of class society and the material, it's a materialist argument, ultimately. <laughs> There's a material route to these, uh, oppre the, these oppressive forms. And so we need to deal with that. And ultimately, Marxism is a materialist philosophy. We have to fight the material roots of things. And we will get into it in a minute here of when you don't do that, what happens? It's you end up being a hamster in a hamster wheel, kind of going around in circles, fighting things and never necessarily getting anywhere never really abolishing the oppression. So, uh, I mean, with that, I, I think I can, I'm going to take a short commercial break and then we'll get back into, uh, you know, Marxism isn't the only, they're not the only ideas in the movement. Actually, we're a small minority. We know that. Uh, I think everyone's aware of that. So there's lots of ideas bouncing around out there in the movement and we'll address those ideas and compare and contrast that with a Marxist analysis. But first, short commercial break. So, yeah, uh, as is tradition, I'll uh, read out our subscribers we've gotten over the last week. Yeah, we're doing very good. We're getting a whole bunch of new subscribers every week, which is, yeah, expanding our subscriber base. Uh, so fight back over the past week. We've had eight new subscribers. Uh, Amelia, Samuel, Patrick, Malcolm, Amber, uh, Amrinder, Kasim, and Azriel. So thank you, comrades, supporters, friends, for subscribing to Fight Back magazine. Uh, I encourage you, if you have not done it already, to become a Solidarity subscriber. That is giving us a monthly amount, which really helps us because we don't, I think we lose money off of our normal subscriptions, actually, because Canada Post just is uh, killing us with postage costs. So, yeah, I encourage you to give us a monthly amount uh, to help us sustain what we do, including this podcast. Uh, yeah, and also our French publication, La Riposte Socialiste, we have six new subscribers, uh, Charlotte, Francis, Marianne, Delia, Manuel, and Jean-Philippe. So yeah, uh, thank you again, comrades and friends, for subscribing to our French publication, which comes out once a month. Fight Back comes out once every two weeks. But yeah, I encourage you to subscribe to our French paper uh, on our website, uh, marxist.qc.ca. Uh, yeah, and support uh, the development of a strong Marxist uh, francophone uh, uh, revolutionary press uh, in Canada and in Quebec. Um, yes, uh, getting back into it here. So, as I said just a minute ago, the, Marxism is not the dominant view in the movement. I mean, I wish it was. Uh, that's why we're here. We, we're fighting for it to become <laughs> uh, understood and accepted by people because we think it is the best uh, way to, to un not only analyze this question, but it's the best way to, to help us understand how to fight against the oppression today. Um, but yeah, maybe... What I mean, it's not it's not the dominant view, but what is the dominant view? What would you say is like sort of the dominant ideas uh, in the movement today? Um, yeah, do you want to maybe start with that, and then we can go on to a few other things? Yeah, for sure. I'm like you mentioned, as Marxists, we have a historical materialist approach towards uh, the fight against oppression. Um, but then um, today, I think the dominant ideas don't necessarily align with this, um, where it is more commonplace, I think, in academia and certain activist circles, it has become uh, the dominant view that this oppression, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, 
they're not a product of history um, and class relations, but it is a transhistorical phenomenon and essentially a product of culture that is constructed um, entirely permeated by relations of power, essentially. And we see these ideas take um, different forms, really, in the movement. But yeah, I think it's also important to think about where these ideas come from as well. So I think in the 80s and 90s, this was a period marked by demobilization and a certain retreats from class struggle. And I think many during this time essentially stopped believing that an alternative to capitalism was possible. So in this process, certain ideas um, that essentially rejected generalizable processes or objective reality um, started gaining some attraction and putting great importance to certain subjective narratives, language, ethics, um, essentially focusing on changing how society perceives LGBT people rather than looking at the material basis uh, of, the, of this oppression that we're fighting against, uh, meaning capitalism, meaning class society. Um, yeah, so I think we see this today where the dominant view, especially in uh, academic circles, is that this oppression is essentially uh, generated, we can say, culturally. So we exist in a web of power relations as individuals um, where we constantly oppress each other and are oppressed by other people based on these axes of um, identities. So what this does essentially creates certain false uh, categories uh, of, um, we could say, uh, of common interest. So it kind of pushes ourselves with uh, towards class collaboration, we could say. And you were mentioning in the beginning, uh, like Pete Buttigieg, I would bring up Kathleen Wynne, the former uh, Ontario uh, Premier, of essentially elevating this idea of representation as a means of ending this oppression, or this idea of inclusion, inclusive language, uh, safe spaces. Uh, these ideas really um, are the dominant ideas, I would say, in the movement today. <clears throat> okay, yeah, that helps to, I think everyone's definitely experienced this. Maybe people listen to this podcast probably might even have, uh, might even believe in some of these ideas. So I guess, you know, obviously this clashes quite directly with what we described as the Marxist analysis of this. So if ideas, and by this we mean prejudices and cultural norms and stuff are simply culturally produced, I guess, you know, uh, what does that even mean? I mean, it's kind of like saying ide ideas produce themselves. It's very tautological. It's a circle in your mind. Uh, then it, it does produce this thing where you're kind of, you're constantly fighting on an ideological plane, uh, but the oppression in a material sense is still very real. Um, so yeah, the logical endpoint of this, I think it, you described it well, it's, it's a representation. I think also in the representation thing, you have this tokenism thing where it's, and the liberals quite, do that quite often where they're, you know, throwing people of an oppressed identity forward as a, as a, as a token to kind of show that they're progressive without doing anything without really doing anything in the material world. I mean, it's this kind of uh, um, performative thing. Justin Trudeau has got this method down. Like that's what his government is. It's it's doing one, doing or saying one thing, performing one way, and in the reality, your policies are directly counter to what you're saying. Uh, 
specifics. Justin Trudeau calls himself a feminist, his uh, marches in pride, but then sends military equipment to Saudi Arabia. Um, everybody knows that one, I think. <laughs> but this shows the one hand is doing one thing, the other is doing the other thing. Shows this kind of liberal um, hypocrisy. Um, so yeah, this is, and, and this ultimately is, as you said, it is a class collaboration. It's, uh, and it, I would argue that it divides and weakens the movement because you get this sort of stay in your lane thing with this matrix of power. It's very, if you know Michel Foucault, it's very Foucaultian. It's this matrix of power relations where we're all simultaneously oppressed and oppressor on various levels. So it's, a, it's not about the class. It's not about the system. It's about all of us oppressing each other. I can't think of a better idea to help the capitalists actually maintain rule. <laughs> it's everyone, all the workers fighting each other. Don't point the finger at the capitalists. Point the finger at yourself and everybody else. <laughs> uh, and I think you see this in many toxic uh, spats in the movement, online. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, anyway, I think that, that summarizes a lot of what is kind of the dominant view. It's kind of, I guess, you know, it's, it's related to these academic ideas like intersectionality. You have queer theory, which is connected to this. We don't have time to get into all of this, which is a massive subject in and of itself. But yeah, this is the kind of, I think you explained the general philosophical approach, which I would describe as idealist. It's an idealist approach, even subjective idealist, which says the product of ideas or product of ideas is ideas, actually. What, what produces this is, is ideas. It's a system, right? So you hear the systemic oppression, but what a lot of academics mean is a, a system of ideas in our minds, not a material system, as we describe, that relies on uh, prejudice and oppressive ideas and certain ideas around the family and sexuality to maintain itself. So yeah, the logical endpoint is liberalism. It's representation it's tokenism, it's stay in your lane, it's dividing the movement, it's segregating the movement, and ultimately weakening the movement. Uh, and it detaches the struggle from the class struggle. That is what uh, class collaboration is. And I guess um, on that, uh, I guess we're on to the uh, sort of Marxist approach to this, like, to, to, to finish off here, like, why do we insist that this must be, uh, we must connect this struggle to the class struggle and to a struggle against the system? Um, can it simply be detached and every struggle of every oppressed group be taken on its own as a group fighting against that form of oppression? Um, yeah, why would uh, Marxists say that it must be a class struggle? I don't know. Do you want to maybe start us off on this yeah but i guess before that when i can't just to add to something you were mentioning about where the logical endpoint of these ideas uh, of identity politics lead us to and then one thing that i think we've given many examples of that how these ideas um are very susceptible to be co-opted by the ruling class and by corporations like we're talking about rainbow capitalism rain uh, certain corporate pride in the beginning um, and really, like, we see this being taken up by certain careerist elements within left-wing organizations. They take these ideas to essentially evade the responsibility of leading an actual struggle against discrimination with strikes, mass protests, and instead focus on, again, language reforms, quotas, uh, rainbow-colored crosswalks, 
what have you. Uh, but I think one thing to understand here, and I think this kind of flows from the Marxist approach to how we fight um, against, um, you know, against oppression, is that I think the aim for a lot of young activists, I think the aim remains of achieving a humane culture and they try to do that through language, through these representation inclusion, but then the political orientation of creating a new language or of equality without also tackling the real social inequality is an illusion. And I think we need to be clear about that because of course a free culture where we can all be free however we want to express ourselves, that is an important thing, but, but it cannot be achieved by the methods and tactics that flow from these certain academic ideas, the idealist ideas, you know, um, because then they serve as an ideological justification for capitalist forces to present themselves as LGBT friendly. Um, but yeah, how do we actually achieve uh, humane culture? How do we actually achieve solidarity among different layers of the working class, LGBT or not? And I think the history has shown that it is mass struggle methods that really gets the goods, right? Pride was created out of a militant movement. So in our fight against oppression, we, as Marxists, propose the methods of class struggle and class unity um, and the need for LGBT people to be an act of solidarity of the entire working class. So this is also how we can overcome, overcome oppressive discourse that they mentioned all the time in academia. So I think to give an example, in a revolutionary situation or in a strike, you know, where we need to unite and fight side by side, LGBT or not, we see prejudices starting to break down. And I think a really good example of this is actually the 1984-85 uh, minor strike in Britain against the struggle against Margaret Thatcher and her regime. Um, and I think for people who might not know, uh, this is a time where there was an organization called LGSM, Lesbians and Gays Support the Minors, um, who really actually trailblazed a certain uh, avenue of solidarity between the LGBT community based in London and the minors in South Wales, um, where they really fundraised for the minors and were in uh, solidarity with them. And in return, actually, the, the National Union of Mine Workers were the first unions, one of the first unions uh, to play a critical role in uh, pushing uh, LGBT civil rights legislation. Um, so I think it's very interesting to see that this, I think, example really also demonstrates this is precisely why the ruling class want us divided. This is why it is to their advantage that we believe in ideas that we're all separated and we all have uh, inherently different interests that oppose each other, you know? So this is why we cannot get distracted by theories and ideas that essentially declaw the revolutionary potential of the movement um, through an opposition to united class struggle um, and dividing workers into these atomized, even smaller entities, you know? Um, and I think most importantly in our fight for civil rights, any reforms, we also cannot lose track of the fact that ultimately capitalism remains the biggest barrier to true emancipation because any reform that is won under capitalism is not guaranteed to last. And I think when we look at examples of Roe v. Wade, for example, we see that every reform that we have, every civil right we have is under constant threat of being abolished once again, as soon as capitalism finds itself in a crisis, right? Um, so we would uh, promote, uh, 
we would actually suggest that instead of a system where a minority of bosses rule our lives and how we essentially um, exist in society, we should fight for the working class to run society, right? So democratic oversight of our workplaces is the single guarantee of preventing, addressing instances of transphobia, homophobia, other forms of discrimination, similarly on campuses. Um, and it's true that a revolution doesn't simply fix uh, all the old prejudices uh, that exist in society, but it does create the conditions where um, a united common struggle for such a humane culture can be developed freely, you know, on the basis of collective democratic ownership uh, and control that is the socialist organization of society. Can we achieve genuine liberation? Yeah, so I think this is a great point to end on here. Uh, the Marxist approach is not one of every group segregating itself off uh, and fighting for its own oppression and either not caring or theoretically thinking that you're not allowed to <laughs> uh, say anything or do anything about the other forms of oppression. The Marx Marxism is a universalist philosophy, actually. So we believe that um, an injury to one is an injury to all. We believe that not only does the oppressed group say like gays or lesbians or trans people need to understand and fight against the oppression that they feel, but I, I'd actually argue that it's actually more important that people that don't directly suffer that form of oppression understand it. Because then how, how, how the heck are you going to get rid of that oppression? How are you going to fight against it? So, and this gets back to, well, then how do we unite? On what basis do we unite to fight against oppression, exploitation for a better society? Uh, and that is class. Uh, that has to be class. I think we, I hope we've made that perfectly clear why that is. Now, quite often you'll hear academics say that any suggestion of this is class reductionist. Uh, so I want to maybe put a nail in that one there. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, we, what, what, what people kind of make that mean, maybe what I said, well, they'll say that, oh, you're therefore downplaying other forms of oppression. Not at all. Nope, Marxism, Marxists have been on the front lines of fighting against every form of oppression and must be uh, today. Um, the question is not whether or not you fight against oppression. The question is how. And so class, class is not, what we mean by class is not a, f a, a prejudice in society, although you do have prejudice against like poor people or poor workers. What I mean is it's a relationship for a Marxist, it's a relationship to the means of production. Now we all maybe, well, maybe there are some bourgeois people listening in, <laughs> but we all work and you have a, rela a certain relationship to the means of production as a worker. Um, and it is actually in our interests as workers to, to uh, unite with our fellow work workers, our fellow proletarians, uh, to fight against the bourgeoisie. And in order to unite, the working class can't be divided and, and oppressing it, and one section oppressing the other section. So on this, this is why we say class must be the basis. Also because, uh, one, we have to fight against this, I guess it's the, the hypocritical deception from the liber liberal wing of the ruling class that tries to appear as friends of the oppressed. We must actually f actively fight against it. The best way is with class methods. Um, 
yeah, so we, we must unite on a class basis. And also the, the methods that are used. It's not performative, pinkwashing, corporate, rainbow, capitalism. Uh, it's not, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, tokenism. It's not the Kathleen Wynne, <laughs> a lesbian premier who attacks working class people. Uh, this is not the way forward. It is working class people uniting together to fight against oppression on every level uh, and to unite the working class to fight against class society and against the system that, that requires and necessitates these prejudices and this form of oppression. And yeah, as I think one thing that you said there, as Marx said, uh, you know, society uh, born of a revolution against like a socialist society when it's first born, I mean, people are scarred psychologically from class society. And it's not as though oppression goes away immediately, but I think it creates the healthy basis in which we can and work, we can do away with oppression, every form of oppression. And working class people do not have an interest in oppressing other working class people. We'll make that point again and again and again, because it is common in academia for people to say, no, it is like a straight man has a has a, a, a interest in oppressing a gay man. I, I don't think that that's true at all. There is no interest in working class people oppressing other, other, other members of the working class. I think for the bourgeoisie, they do have an interest in that. And so we need to put that focus on the class struggle methods, class unity, fighting, uniting the working class to fight against oppression and exploitation and capitalist exploitation. And don't think that, I think there's this liberal myth that it's uh, a linear uh, line upwards towards progression and progress and against oppression. And I think in Canada, that belief is particularly strong. Don't believe it. It's not true. And actually, history has known many different uh, steps backwards. And I think we're starting to see that in the U.S., and that actually, with the crisis of capitalism and the polarization and radicalization of our society, as Marxists, as socialists, we need to provide a revolutionary socialist solution to this problem. And if we don't, as Marx said, the, this, the, the question is socialism or barbarism, actually. <laughs> and, and you're seeing this repeal, or this, they haven't done it yet, but the attempted repeal of Roe v. Wade is barbaric, actually. And I think that probably many, maybe many gay people are thinking, oh, shit, are we next? Like, and that's actually what that means. You think that these, these people are going to stop with that? No, they will keep going because they will find another way to divide and distract and, and, and oppress people. And so we must fight against it, but we don't just fight against it on an ideological basis uh, by challenging prejudice and ideas and the culture and all and all that. But we got to fight the, against the root, the material root, which is class society and the capitalist system and fight for a socialist transformation of society. Um, yeah, so I think in terms of the discussion here, unless you have anything finally you want to end, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. I do have a couple things to plug. Um, I plugged them a couple weeks, I think now, so I will plug them again. But yeah, in a week and a half or so, uh, we have uh, the biggest Marxist, I think it's the biggest Marxist gathering in the Western half of the country. So the Western Marxist School, which will be in person in Edmonton on the weekend of July 2nd and 3rd. And I highly recommend that you register and you attend this event. The theme is the struggle against imperialism. You can find a full list of the presentations and you can register on our website at marxist.ca. 
the other thing is uh, an absolutely fantastic international event. We are part of the International Marxist Tendency, and there is the second edition at, of the online International Marxist University. The first one was in 2020, which had over 6,500 people attending. This year is going to be bigger and better than ever for sure, and it is for four days, uh, uh, July 23rd, 24th, 25th, and 26th. You can find those details on our website at marxist.ca. So please uh, register for these two schools, which are shaping up to be really fantastic. Uh, yeah, and you will use this as an educational tool to educate uh, everyone on Marxist theory. And yeah, one final thing about the International Marxist University, there is a session, a full session on Marxism. I believe it's Marxism and the family on origins. So it is related to this question. So I think that that would actually really help people to theoretically and historically understand this question that we've discussed today. Um, uh, final note, we won't be doing the podcast next week. Um, yeah, just summer break, vacations, etc. We're a bit short staff. So, uh, uh, and we won't necessarily be doing the podcast the following week, the week of the fourth either. Uh, maybe if there is something, some big question that erupts, we might pull it together to do it. But I'm just letting letting people know if you're waiting for the podcast, uh, we might we won't necessarily do it for the next, definitely not next week, and and maybe not even the week following. So yeah, thank you everyone for listening in again. Uh, check out our website marxist.ca, uh, and uh, I hope to see you back in a couple of weeks. You have been listening to This Week in the Canadian Revolution, where we analyze the events of the class struggle, the turbulence and polarization brought upon by the crisis of the capitalist system, in order to prepare activists for the coming revolutionary events, so that we can fight back and build socialism in our lifetime. You can find us at marxist.ca, and we will be doing this podcast every week, so we hope that you tune in again.